every two years we do an entire reinvention exercise. So what we do is we actually say, okay, forget about what we've got, forget who the employees are, forget who the patients are, forget our locations, forget everything. All we've got is some money. What would we do? And then we reinvent our business and then we compare that picture to what we have. listening to How I Scaled My Aesthetic Clinic, the podcast where the most high-performing owners of aesthetic clinics and med spas from all over the world tell their stories and share the strategies and insights that allowed them to grow their business from often humble beginnings to soaring success. If you've ever tried to build a clinic, you'll know that it takes a lot more than just being a great doctor or practitioner, and it helps when you learn from the best in the industry. So join me, Miriam Shaviv, host and director of content at Brainstorm Digital, as we explore how aesthetic clinic owners just like you have developed the mindset, skills, and experience to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. Let's jump in. You opened your practice because you want to do what you love, which is help people look and feel their best. But to scale your practice, to be profitable and to grow consistently, has to be run like a proper business. And that is a completely different skill. That's also where today's guest shines. When Victor Snyders came to the aesthetic industry in 2005, he didn't have a medical background, but he had deep experience in the corporate world and had owned both a property business and a retail company. And he applied his business expertise and all the lessons he'd learned along the way to build up one of South Africa's largest and most successful clinic chains. Nowadays, the Renewal Institute clinics operate in 16 locations across South Africa. The Institute consists of five brands, skin renewal, body renewal, health renewal, sleep renewal, and even brain renewal. And they're all growing fast. Victor, welcome to How I Scaled My Aesthetic Clinic. We're really looking forward to hearing how you did all that. Thanks, Miriam. So let's start off with the obvious question, which is with this um, background um, in completely different sectors, how did you make the switch into aesthetics? How and why? Well, um, I'm an architect by profession and um, earned my living for this part of 20, 25 years in the commercial property industry, predominantly in shopping mall development. And um, after 25 years, I really had had enough of it. I was doing the same kind of mall over and over, cookie cut out into different locations, and um, was really ready for a new challenge. But during the journey of of, uh, doing the mall work, um, I got a lot of experience in demographics, in understanding consumer behavior. I was particularly interested in the psychology of the shopper. And um, it was just time for a life change. Um, I just didn't know what it was that I was going to do. So and then how I fell in love with, with, with aesthetics of all things. I fell in love. <laughs> <laughs> so behind every um, successful woman is a, is a tired man. I'm the tired man. Um, I met my current partner, Dr. Maureen Allen, in 2004. And um, she was working as a doctor in full-time practice. But she had two afternoons off a week. And it was... In 2001, just after Botox had actually come out, 
she started injecting Botox at home, starting off with her sister and a couple of friends and extended family. She comes from a Afrikaans Lebanese background, so the families tend to be rather large. And um, she had lots of clients straight away. Yeah, so she had a couple of clients, and there was actually no intention to take it seriously as a business. She was doing her thing, and I was doing my thing. And then one day, um, we live in a complex which has a body corporate, and everybody corporate has the uh, proverbial little old lady who sits behind a twitching curtain watching everything that goes on in the complex. And the old lady in our complex decided that Maureen was running a business from a residence and that she shouldn't do that. And Maureen got a letter from the body corporate telling her to please go and get an office. So she came to me and said, well, you know something about property, let me get an office. And um, even then there was no intent really to do a business. We hired a little office of 25 square meters. We put in some air conditioning and we put in one partition and she opened on the 7th of the 7th, 2005, the day of the London bombings. And her son lives in London and had just moved to London. It's a day we'll never forget because on the one side, we opened the clinic and on the other side, we heard that the bombs had gone off. So we were more, we were more worried about her son and that he was all right. And anyway, we came home at the end of the first exhausting day. Um, everything had run okay and... Uh, her son was alright in London and she said to me, you know what, this isn't going to work. She says, it's a tiny little room and I'm never going to be able to do what I want to do. I'd love to employ a staff member or a therapist. I'd like to get some technology. Um, and I think this thing could become something. And we went that weekend and we bought a very old house. And for the next year, I spent uh, demolishing the house and rebuilding it and turning it into a little clinic. We located very much around a lot of the theory that I'd done in shopping centre development to know where to put it and where there was a potential customer base. And um, we thought that was all. Okay, so, um, so setting up, at that point, you already realised that you did want to make a real business of it. Um, so were you intent on, on kind of setting it up right, as it were, right from the beginning? Not at all. Not at all. Um, I didn't understand the aesthetic industry. Uh, Maureen didn't have a business background. So we literally just set it up as many doctors would set up a practice. And we made it look pretty. And we learned as we went along. Um, the intention was never to create what has happened. Um, that only happened about five or six years later. Um, when the date came to open that, which was then going to be our clinic, um, Maureen said to me, oh, you know, I've actually got a problem now because I've developed a little bit of a patient base at that old office that I opened. And this new location is on the other side of town. And my existing patients don't want to move. They want to carry on seeing me where I was. So she said, oh, I've got a plan. I'll work there in the morning, and then I'll go to the new location in the afternoon. And tomorrow I'll start in the morning at the new location, and I'll go to the other place in the afternoon. So we thought that was it. She would just move between the two things. There were no computer systems. There was no accounting. I wasn't involved in the business. I'd only been involved in the property. 
So, Victor, what I'm interested in here is I assume that because you came from a big business background, you set it up very, very business oriented from the beginning. But actually, it sounds like the business initially grew in the way that many aesthetic clinics grow, kind of organically. So uh, five or six years later, you were clearly in a different place. What happened in the meanwhile? Were there any decisions that you took that suddenly allowed it to, to really scale and to flourish? Well, there, there were a couple of steps because um, after we'd opened the second clinic, about a month after we opened the second clinic, we heard of a doctor who was selling his medical practice in another part of Johannesburg. And he was moving to Ireland and um, wanted to sell the clinic. And it was a bit of a forced sale because he was getting divorced. And I went and met him and I did a deal for Maureen. This was still all Maureen's business. I wasn't involved um, and she was running it, um, but she was getting starting to get quite stressed. And we did a deal with this doctor and we bought his clinic. And now there were three. And then she said to me, now, you've always been telling me how you want to get out of commercial property and malls. Uh, don't you think it's time to come and work for me? And I said, no, uh, we'll work together and we'll do it as a partnership, but we're not going to ever work for each other. Um, and it, it, I think that was a key decision for us because one of the things we had to learn was how to have a relationship, a life relationship and a business together. Um, and by then we'd figured that out because we actually found the solution in that neither of us is ever right. Um, and you presumably have very different job descriptions. Um, to totally different and totally different personalities. The only thing that we have in common is we both uh, driven, opportunistic, and we A-type personalities. Both of us have a little bit of control freaks. <laughs> so, Victor, at that point when you decided, okay, we're going to now make this into a serious business, um, what lessons did you draw from your previous life and your previous business experience in order to really make this um, a success? Okay, now, number one, we needed to brand it. So it never had a brand. Um, the brand was Dr. Maureen. And I said to you, you know, if we're going to turn this into a business and it's your name is the brand, then you will forever be attached to that brand. You can never sell that brand and people will always identify you with the brand and the brand with you, but you can't be everywhere at the same time. So you needed to create a brand. And the first you, brand you, we you created... Already, you're already thinking essentially of... That, that means you're already thinking of scaling because you're already thinking... I don't, Miriam, I don't think that there was an intent to scale at that stage. I think um, certainly for the first six years of the business, scaling was never an intent. We just had to keep doing things to manage the monster that we were creating. Um, you know, it was a little bit like uh, a Frankenstein movie. You start it and it becomes something and then suddenly it starts controlling you and you have to find ways to manage what it was. Um, we did realize that it was a business, but we never ever were saying, okay, where's the next branch? What's the next opportunity? We were still trying to manage what we actually had. What we did, the sorts of decisions we made early on is that um, we put a lot of tech into things. Um, so we started setting up really good computer systems, which at that stage weren't even designed to scale. Uh, we started good accounting systems, good business practices. We took very good legal advice. We spoke to bankers. We spoke to financial people. Um, and 
there were a few other steps that we made, which fortuitously, I think, turned out to be the right steps. Um, I had just, I've, I'm an avid reader. Um, I probably read three or four books every single week. And I had just finished a book about Google um, back in 2005. And I said to Maureen, you know that Google don't ever advertise posts. People have to come to them. I think that's a great idea. So she said, well, that's very nice if you're Google. Lots of people will come and knock at your door. But we don't have any employees. How are we going to get our first employee if we don't advertise? And I said, well, the first one we'll find will be a connection of some sort. But if we do this, we are immediately going to draw people to us that have identified us and have the initiative to approach us rather than just responding to an ad. And secondly, we will always have to make ourselves an, a desirable employer. Uh, because if we set ourselves up to be employers of choice, then that creates a, a pressure on us to create an environment, a, a remuneration system, um, a company culture that people are drawn to instead of um, doing it through. And we also did it to save money on recruitment agencies. But what's interesting here, though, is that in a way you're saying that you initially set it up, you were thinking about being attractive to employees and not just thinking, or maybe not even thinking at all. I'm sure you were thinking but about the actual patients, but you were very conscious of the employ about being a good employer right from the beginning as well. Yeah, correct. And, you know, in the beginning, there was, there was no marketing, certainly for the first year. Um, Facebook had hardly started. Even Google was in its infancy. Um, Google had only been running for a couple of years. Um, we set up a website. I have also got a background in, um, in SEO and, and web-based um, tech. So we set up a very basic website and we really built the first bit of the business through referrals, creating a customer experience. Um, I was lucky in that Maureen is an extraordinary doctor and uh, she got amazing results and um, it gradually so built. So there's a couple of things that you mentioned that I want to pick up on. First of all, you talked about very early on systemizing. You talked about putting in computer systems, other types of systems. Um, and when it comes to business development, um, that's something that many businesses actually leave till quite late. And then ha they, have, they don't put it in, then they have to go fix it. But actually, you need that in order to scale. So how important were those kind of systems for your eventual scaling? They were absolutely critical, but we made lots of mistakes. Um, so tell me, because, how did you decide which business, which, um, which, um, which systems you wanted to implement? Chopped around, researched, look at what other people were doing. We went to other countries. We travel overseas every year. We go to the international congresses in Monaco, in Paris. Uh, we went to the States. Uh, we, we started connecting worldwide with people to see what other people were doing. Um, but back in 2005, there were very few chains. And even most of the computer systems weren't built to operate on an enterprise scale. They were built to operate for the single location. So you had a computer at the location and it had a, a database and everything was in that computer. But we very soon started picking up problems because a patient would say, well, um, I actually work near your other branch. Can I go there for my next appointment because it's more convenient? 
but none of the patient records were there. So then we would have to run copies, send faxes, and there was this mounting pile of paper, and there were no enterprise-type systems. So certainly for the first five branches, we ran them as five separate businesses, um, which we then manually had to incorporate, and we had to move this information literally by fax and by courier backwards and forwards between branches. But what it did do for us was meant that when we started, every branch was run as its own business. Uh, and that made us look at the detail in each business because each business had to work because the books were being kept only at that location. It was only at a later point. Initially, you were actually running five different businesses, so five Correct. instead of one. Correct. Um, to build them into one business because obviously um, there there is this challenge of keeping things local and intimate for your patients, but also creating a brand. How did you, what was the process of taking all those different branches and those mini businesses essentially that you built at, that you built and turning them into a brand? You know, I don't, at least we got the story that those first five branches all had the same name and the same logo. Um, with myself being an architect and Maureen being also a published interior designer, we also had an interior system that worked and though so that the branches had a very, very similar look and feel. Um, so those things were in place. But even at five branches, we were not intending to ever do it bigger. Every time we did a branch, I would say up until about number 10, uh, Maureen and I would say, okay, this is the last one. We're not going to do another one. We also took a very critical decision early on, and that was never to franchise. Why did you decide that? So two reasons. Number one, and it goes back, I'm, I'm an avid follower of a, a, a business guy called Simon Sinek. I'm sure you've heard of him. Of course. And one of the very first questions we asked ourselves is, why are we in business? Going back to the whole ethos of why have you actually started this in the first place? And when you ask most people, why are you in business? The standard answer is to make money. And that's not a satisfactory answer. You have to go to a deeper place to find why you're actually in business. Maureen and I were both empty nesters. We'd both been married before. We had two kids. The kids had grown up and left home. Our homes were paid off. And we were in the fortunate position of not needing um, to draw an income out of the business in the beginning because we had savings. Um, so... Uh, we asked ourselves the question, why? And we spent quite a long time grappling with it. And one of the tests, when you do the why exercise, it's easy to come up with a why, which is pages or paragraphs long. But we forced ourselves to distill it into three words. So you actually, to, you actually did the, the proper exercise in order to figure out the why of your business. Absolutely. And what we came up with was to transform lives. That's why we're in business because we knew that what we did changed the way that people felt about themselves, because most people, the way they feel about themselves is projected by how others react to them. So it could give them a sense of confidence, it could give them that, and although they would be the ones responsible for changing their old li own lives, we facilitate the trans facilitated the transformation by giving them the opportunity to feel better about themselves. And 
So first of all, how did understanding, I'm very interested that you did this exercise. It sounds like you actually did it several years after opening. So something you can yes. retroactively. Um, yes. So first of all, what made you realize that actually you didn't have a satisfactory why? Because we needed to know why, quite simply, why is it that we get up and go and do this every day? If it's just about making money, we can do anything we want. Why do we actually love doing what we're doing? And where our satisfaction came out of it is out of the results we saw in patients. And patients, you know, there was a lovely thing on Sky last night with the uh, maxillofacial surgeon who fixed that uh, young girl's face after the horse kicked and broke her jaw into two. And it was a life-threatening injury. And certainly from an aesthetic point of view, uh, that girl was going to walk around not only with uh, a very distorted face, but with a jaw that didn't work, not being able to eat, with a speech impediment. And this maxillofacial surgeon did the most extraordinary job. And the parents were on Sky TV last night and they interviewed the plastic surgeon. And they asked him, you know, don't you feel um, good for all the accolades you've got? And he said, no, I feel good because I managed to give someone else a chance and an opportunity. And the satisfaction we were getting from patients was from patients coming us to and saying thank you so much for what you've done and that was that was what made us wake up every morning so that moment when you actually defined the businesses why um, yeah. how did that change the way that you then ran the business was this just something that okay so fine you now have this in your head or no it was an aha moment strategic difference no it was very much an aha moment because once we realized that we were doing that, we became even more customer-focused or customer-centric than we'd ever been before, because everything was then around the customer's experience. Um, going back to the question of the franchises, this, and this answers it, if somebody buys a franchise, their why is a different why, because their why is investing in a business to make money. And then you are sitting with someone in your business whose reason for being there is totally different to what the ethos of the business is. The second problem is that you then have to start managing that person and managing those standards. And you don't have total control anymore other than through your franchise agreement. So we made the decision we would never ever franchise and whatever we did, we would always own. It, the only question was, uh, how much capacity do we have and the other thing is that if you're developing and growing a business yourself, you have to do it out of your own resources. If you're building a franchise empire, you're using other people's money. Okay. So let, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit longer about, this, um, about this, uh, th this idea that suddenly you had a defined business purpose. Um, first of all, how you, you said that that made a difference that suddenly the business became a lot more customer focused. Can you give me a few examples of how the real impact of that? I'll, I'll give, yes, some, some great examples. So one of the things, for instance, we don't do is we don't employ receptionists. Because? Because the typical receptionist, and we all know them, uh, whether it's in corporate or in medical, is somebody who answers the phone. In most medical practices, I call that lady the bulldog or the gatekeeper, whose job is to keep people away from the doctor and only allow through to the doctor the people that the doctor will allow through. 
so reps and whatever. Her job is to filter all the noise out and only let the doctor deal with what he does. Uh, and in most corporates, the person, your phones. <laughs> so our most qualified staff member. So somebody senior. It is the most senior person in the company outside of the doctors earns the right to answer the phone. Answering the phone in our business is a privilege. Wow. It's not a job. Can you give me another example? Is there another example? Front desk. That's where they sit. So the manager does not manage the business from the office. The manager manages the business from the desk, from there. So you've got your most senior person is your first contact point for the customer. So the customer who phones with a question or is looking for a solution is probably outside of answers that come out of the doctor's consultation. She's talking to the right person straight away. There's no, we'll take a message and I'll talk to the doctor and get back to you or let me put you through to somebody else. So it's giving that, um, it also means that the person there in front of you is someone immediately that you can respect and trust and that you know understands this business. They're not just filling a space to move voice traffic or move people from one place to another. So we don't have receptionists. So Victor, this ties together a couple of the themes that we talked about earlier, which is, um, which is getting the right people in place, but also getting staff buy-in. Um, transformation of lives was your why, but how do you get staff to buy into that? So if I go back to what I said, where we would never advertise. So one of the first things that did is that meant that anybody who had for whatever their reason, identified us as a place that they would like to work, already had a degree of initiative and was prepared to do something about it instead of sitting back and waiting. So they would phone us or they would come in and say, I would like to work here. This looks like an interesting place to work. Or I've heard from someone else that this is an interesting or amazing or nice place to work. Um, and then we would interview them. So we looked in the first thing for those initiatives um, that, that they would be prepared to take that initiative to approach us. And then we'd go very much into the person themselves and they needed to have a why as well. Why did you become a therapist? Why did you become a doctor? If it's I became a doctor because I wanted to have a successful practice, own a home, another home in Ibiza, buy a yacht, and go on lots of holidays and send my kids to private school. Well, then we would say, well, we wish you luck, and we hope that, you have a, that your dreams come true. But when we started seeing people that were saying, what I want to do is I want to change lives, and I want to make a difference, um, those are the sorts of people that we then identified. And we still have many staff that joined us in 2005, six, seven, eight, um, We've been going for 14 years. This is our 15th year. And we've got staff who've been with us right from the beginning. So they, they pick up on the atmosphere and they, and they stay. But you've got, to, you've got to be able to choose people who have that ethos. Um, and whenever we've gone wrong with staff, it's because we just needed someone to fill a space. Um, it's better not to have a staff member than have the wrong staff member. Um, so staff selection, absolutely critical. Victor, 
you know, the when people, when as businesses change, um, and I've heard this from business owners, not just in the aesthetic industry and lots of industry, um, very often their why changes as well for many reasons. Sometimes they are, you know, their needs change as they get older or the business changes. Um, is this an this why exercise? Is that something that you that, that you did once and then it was set, or has your why actually changed? Is this something that you do frequently? We every two years we do an entire reinvention exercise. But then the so what we do is we actually say, okay, forget about what we've got, forget who the employees are, forget who the patients are. Forget our locations, forget everything. All we've got is some money. What would we do? And then we reinvent our business. And then we compare that picture to what we have. And, and that gives us an idea. Maureen, or this is a senior management team? Who, who, who is doing this? Originally, it was just Maureen and myself. Um, made for some very interesting uh, dinner time chatter. Um, sometimes we didn't get to dessert, <laughs> um, but now it now now you know there's a there's a senior management team, uh, there's a board, um, and we have uh, some very senior people now in the company. So you are basically constantly checking in to make to. sure that the business actually still serves your needs. And that we serve the needs of the planet, the community, the world, because we're living in such a rapidly changing world. You know, one of the things in aesthetics is the, the, the extent to which the technology moves. Um, people are always amazed at how, how cell phone technology moves fast. Medical aesthetics moves just as fast. So one of the things, because we were pioneers, we were at the cutting edge. And it's nice being at the cutting edge, but the downside is you have to stay at the cutting edge. So we constantly have to look at that and say, are we doing things in a way that has actually become out of mode or are there now better solutions? And that requires you to look at reinvestment in new technology, uh, new, anything new. Um, so we constantly are asking that, but we do it in a formalized, structured way every two years. Um, so then I have to ask, has the why, to go back, te technology, technological changes for sure, but, has the, the, but the why is the essence of the business. So why is, The why has never changed. Why has never changed. So what's never changed, changed is, um, is, is more superficially how you, how you perform lives. It's more the how rather than the why is changing. Correct. Correct. So what are the so 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 walk me a little bit through this um, this process. So if another clinic wanted to implement the um, this process where every couple of years they go and they look at everything from the beginning, what are they looking at? What are the questions are they asking themselves? How how do how do clinic owners do this? Well, I think first one has to go through those processes of getting that why correct and setting everything up so that it works in a single location. And you've got to make sure that that thing works. You can then only create growth in various ways, but all of that growth requires funding. So you can grow by acquisition. So you can purchase other practices or other locations and grow your business into them. You can grow organically um, by expanding your offer within a branch 
or you can grow by location and number of places where you are. But they require funding. And it's where most small clinics get stuck is because they consider that clinic or that location their business. And then they start taking out the dividends. And if they're not reinvesting, so we reinvest virtually everything into the business. Maureen and I simply to work for day. a salary. To this day. Yes, to this day. So we work for a salary. Uh, there's a very important part in this, and this comes out of, out of business philosophy. Um, and it's something we implemented. Treat yourself as an employee and treat your employees as yourself. So by treating yourself, the fact that you work in a business and the fact that you own a business is two separate things. When you open your mouth to your staff, are you speaking as the manager of that business or are you speaking as the shareholder? Now, if we go to the stock exchange, many of us own shares in listed companies, but that does not give us a right to tell the managers, I cannot walk into a branch of a bank that I own a share in and tell someone that they fired. <laughs> so from a okay, business, so yeah. you've got to separate your role as an investor, as a shareholder, which is looking for a return from working in that business every day and fulfilling the needs of the investor, but also being true to the ethos of the business. And once you start doing that, then you have a chance of growing the business because then you can say, okay, there are profits but we will not use those profits um, because we want to grow the business. But now you've no longer be, you're now serving the business and not necessarily the needs of the shareholder. So as the business owner though, essentially you have to make, you, you have to make a financial choice. You can, there, there is value. If you're building a, um, an, a, 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 a business properly, there is value in the business at some point. You can either take it out as you run it, right? In terms, you know, you're taking out a lot of money and then you can't reinvest it. Or you can say, you know what, I'll take it out at the end when I sell or when I retire. Um, but during, during the process of actually building that business, I'm going to leave the value in it and probably make it larger at the end. And that's essentially the, the financial choice that you're, that you're saying that actually you have to make. Correct. And we made that choice that we would just draw a salary, so we would live within our means uh, according to our salary. We would pay ourselves a market-related salary for the job that we did, which is the eight-to-five job. The fact that we start at four in the morning and finish at 10 at night, that's not the job. Um, but we would earn a salary, and then we live off that salary. Um, and this goes, other... very much, this goes very much to the why of the business because the why of the business was, is not um, about a, 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 an extravagant Money. lifestyle right now. Uh, one of the other reasons that we were actually forced to realize that we had to grow was because of our staff. We started attracting very, very good staff. And if we didn't grow, we were creating no opportunities for them. And if you don't have a staff turnover then your staff are going to be doing exactly the same job for the next 50 years. So you had so, to, in order to give the people that you valued growth opportunities. Correct. So, so you have to be this, willing to do that. Yes. But we owed it to them. You know, these were people, many of these people we employed direct out of university or out of college. 
and they'd approached us because they thought our business had potential. Uh, they put their faith in us to provide. You know, it's a thing we're very, very aware of. We've now got over 200 employees. So we're responsible for the well-being of over a thousand people in terms of their food, their roof, their vehicle, their education, their lives. Um, we have to provide for that. And it's a, it's a very serious fiduciary responsibility that these people have placed the trust in you to make good decisions, to give them the things they are looking for out of life. Um, and people are looking for growth. You know, we, we employ young people, as I said, they come out of college, but they want to get married. They want to raise a family. They want to buy a home. So they have dreams and aspirations. And very, to a very large extent, we're responsible for helping them reach those dreams and aspirations. Has this why, has, has having this larger purpose for your business, clearly it's affected you, clearly it's affected your employees, has it affected the kind of treatments and services, essentially, that you offer um, your patients? I think that that is something that's evolved. Um, it's certainly been a lot more apparent in the last three years where we've taken in, an entirely different approach to the way we actually treat patients. It was something I learned from a, a plastic surgeon in the US, uh, Stephen Dayan. We were at a conference in Paris and I met Stephen Dayan and a guy called Paul Nassif who runs the program Botched. A plastic surgeon from Los Angeles or New York, I think. And we met them and we spent some time in a workshop with them. And um, Steve said to us, you know, if all you are doing is selling exactly the same treatments as everybody else, he said, eventually you land up in a competitive situation where virtually the only differentiator is price. And once you go on the price uh, model, that's a slippery slope. Because eventually, the bigger the discount, the less the profit, and you, you're not going to have a viable business. And so the outstanding customer service, which it sounds like you have, is, is great, but, but it's not enough of a So one of the very first things we identified as a challenge, if we were going to grow this business and grow it to scale, is that on one side, we needed to have consistency in delivery. We had to be like McDonald's. You don't choose one McDonald's branch above another because their burgers are better. What you know is if you go to a McDonald's, the burger is guaranteed. That is what the burger will be. If you want to go to a Michelin star restaurant, you get a totally unique experience. So what is it that people want with the unique experience, but they also want the consistency of the McDonald's? And it's finding that balance Problem is at McDonald's, nobody even knows your name. You go to the Michelin star restaurant and they say, welcome back, Miriam. So nice to see you again. Would you like the same wine as you had last time? Uh, at McDonald's, no one would ask you, you know, do you want the same bottomless uh, diet cola that you had last time? Um, so you've got to create this balance between consistency and absolute personalization. And finding that balance is really a key to scaling. So how, how have you done that? Number one, protocols, systems, and training. So that's what we discussed at the beginning, that actually those systems turned out to be, because those, those provide the consistency. 
So in about 2009, when we'd been going for five years, we recognized that we were not being consistent and that therapists were doing different things in different branches. Doctors were doing different things in different branches. And we realized we needed to systemize the business. So we spent nearly a year creating protocols. And what the way we did the protocols, instead of us deciding the protocols and imposing them on the staff, we turned it into a collaborative process so that the protocols became a repository of all the best that everyone in the company knew. And this was just for the treatments or was it also for the customer service? Every, every last thing from how the phone is answered, what words you use, how you write an email, how you finish an email, how you respond to a complaint, um, every last thing. We looked at the smell in every branch. We looked at the light level in every branch. We looked at the treatments. We looked at every last little detail uh, to make sure that there was a protocol written for it. So and everyone contributed their, it sounds like a massive project. Everyone contributed. Yeah. Yeah, everyone contributed. Yeah, at, that stage, at that stage, we had eight branches. Um, we had about 70 staff and nearly everyone at every level was involved in it. And there was a lot of debate and there was a lot of argument and there was a lot of dissent because everyone had different ways of doing things. And we had to find points of consensus as to what is, and we used the example of Maureen and I, and I raised it right at the beginning. As soon as you give up the need to be right about something, um, where one person is right, because by default, if one person is right, well, then the other one is wrong. But if the meeting point is somewhere in the middle, then it's both parties have contributed to a better solution. And by simple definition, 70 people or 100 people or 200 people will always know more than one person. The wisdom of the crowd. So why, so why not le leverage that, but in a managed way? So, Victor, we're going to take a break in a second. But before that, I have one more question, which is that you created a, a, a very large level of consistency across branches. But then you have that tension um, of... Each, you know, you, you operate in more than one city, and I'm sure that the, um, the populations that you serve in different branches are very, very different. How do you balance that, um, that need for consistency um, with allowing each branch to have its own personality? Is that even important? Uh, yeah, the, the personality of a branch is important, and dynamics in a branch change as the staff change. You know, you can have six staff in a branch and you add a new staff member. The group dynamic changes. And you need to be very, very aware of that group dynamic. So very often, something else has to be changed. One of the things we also did, we built this business with a culture of change as being part of the business. We said right at the beginning, we're in a world that is changing. Our customer needs are changing. And we must be prepared to change. And we have a motto that our only constant is change. And we... So you're reevaluating everything every couple of years anyway. So I guess... Well, that, does that... Does that, that in, in terms of strategy, yes, we reevaluate every couple of years. But we change things almost on a daily basis. 
this is a constantly evolving business because although there is a protocol, during the course of the year, that protocol will have probably 200 amendments to the protocol of lessons that we learn. Then the document becomes very messy and then we cancel that protocol and republish the whole thing as version two and we start off with clean pages again. And then within two year, within another year, we have to go to version three because once again, the changes. So that really explains, as I see it anyway, that essentially what's going on in the branches is affecting the overall picture as well. And in some ways that probably allows people's preferences, the, the funny, th the, the effective things they discover along the way to find expression. Is that somehow the balance? Yeah, and you know, even if we look at our own staff, if, if I take a typical therapist that we are taking out of college, she's 19 years old, she's single, and seven or eight years later, she's married, she has a home, and she has two children. This is a very different person to the one that you employed. She has different pressures. She has kids who get sick. She has a husband that she needs to manage. She has a life and a budget. And, you know, if I remember... As a student, I never wanted for anything. I didn't have much, but I always had money for beer. <laughs> but somehow when you're 27, money for beer is not your biggest priority anymore. Your priorities shift. So as our staff's priorities have shifted, so we've had to adapt to accommodate that. Um, the reality is that with a, a company now with 200 employees, of which 185 are women, one of the things we learned very early on was um, and this was, I think, in our third year that one of our therapists came to me and said, uh, Victor, um, I've got some bad news. I'm pregnant. And it was like a slap in the face to me because I thought, you she know, what have you done that this is bad news or that you perceive that I will take this as bad news? We have to change ourselves so that this becomes good news. Um, last week, we had our 57th baby born in the company. Um, wow. So we have a particular way of dealing with that. And having babies is now an absolute part of our company culture. And it's celebrated. And as a result, it's managed. Um, so and what, we have what, a very what, unique what, approach. The big message that I'm actually hearing from you um, is that ultimately being a caring company, caring for your staff, caring for your patients, and caring really for yourself as well, is off. <laughs> Well, if you go back to that motto, treat your employees as yourself and treat yourself as an employee. The answer is in there. Victor, we're going to take a break. We'll be back in a minute. Um, I have a no specific problem. process that I really want to ask you about. So we'll be back in a minute. Hey, Miriam here. And before we get back to today's guest, I just want to mention something you might be interested in. Because as you're listening to this podcast, I'm guessing that you might want to scale your own aesthetic clinic or med spa. And at Brainstorm Digital, we've developed a three-step process that keeps your practice fully booked with high-quality patients. It's called the Zero Ad Spend Aesthetic Accelerator System. And it gets your patients through your doors again and again, so you can rapidly raise your turnover and scale without chasing the same expensive, difficult to convert leads on Google and on social media that all your competitors are going after. 
To find out more about how this proven process works, I've recorded a short video which not only walks you through the three steps so you know exactly how we do it, but you'll also see how one ambitious clinic owner used the system to generate an extra $183,000 in revenue in just 12 months. To watch the short video, go to brainstormaesthetics.com. That's pretty simple to remember, brainstormaesthetics.com. But I'll put the address into the show notes as well so you can access it easily at the end of the podcast. And if you'd like to talk to me afterwards about how we can implement this powerful results-driven system for your clinic, there's a quick form you can use to get in touch with me after you've watched the video or just email me directly. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Now let's get back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. Um, Victor, there's one process that I know that you, um, that you implement that I really want to talk to you about. It's actually one of these things that you do every couple of years, um, and it is some kind of process that you have in order to understand the customers better, patients yeah. better, I should say. Um, so first of all, just before I ask you about how you do that, um, why is this so important? I mean, most clinics would say, well, we understand our patients. Why do you think there's anything more necessary? I think one of the reasons is that we live in South Africa. And South Africa is a very, very, it is a country which is changing and has gone through immense change in 20 years. So we have seen a complete shift in consumers. Um, and whilst most people may think that relates to skin type, which in our business happens to be very, very relevant, um, in fact, more relevant than just about any other kind of business because we treat the skin. And you treat a type 6 skin very differently to a type 1 skin. But we are in a country that has undergone immense change, and you have to keep a handle on it. I, I very often speak in analogies, and everyone knows the analogy of putting a frog in a kettle. And that way you essentially eventually boil the frog because the frog doesn't notice the change in temperature as the kettle is getting warmer. We know it with our kids. If we bump into someone we haven't seen for a year or two, they say, oh, little Johnny's really shot up. No, little Johnny's grown at the same rate as every other kid. It's just that you haven't seen him. So change, very often we don't realize is happening because it's so slight on a day-to-day -day basis. So I, you actually, I, would actually, I would actually add something, though. It's true that um, in South Africa you have this massive, this issue of very rapid and probably quite extreme change. Um, right. it, it is, most businesses, the truth is, um, and certainly most clinics, make a lot of assumptions about who their patients are and actually to uh, to serve them properly and to market to them properly you have to have a very very deep understanding of the, of who they are and i would yeah. think that anyway my experience because this very much ties into what we do as marketers um we always really go to great lengths to understand who a clinic's um clientele are because most clinics, the truth is, don't understand people at a deep enough level what they really want and who they really are and what's really bothering them, um, in order to really, in order, in order to to market to them and to serve them at a very, very deep level. So I think that most businesses and most clinics, they're kind of on at a surface level, but this is work that everyone should be doing. Absolutely. Really you know, it really came from two parts. So the one was some of my own previous work has been in personal development. And I was an avid follower of, a, of an American writer called Carolyn Mice, M-Y-S-S. -S. 
and she used an exercise called archetypes, which is a type of personality understanding to understand different types of people's personalities. But one of the things, we were very late entrance into social media and we did it for a good reason because we didn't understand it. And with social media, what, one of the first things we learned is social media is about consumers wanting information. If you use social media to tell people what you want to tell them, all they have to do is one click and they will never be bothered by you again. So unless you are telling them what they want to hear, they can change channels. And you have exclude. to speak to them at a, at a deep level and really understand their needs, which is true not just in social media, also definitely on email, which is what we do as well. Um, so, what's, so it was because of these two inputs that we started this thing, and we've also called it our archetype exercise. So really, two years we draw a line. So, so run us through this archetype, this archetype so, exercise. So every two years we draw a line under the business, and we go to each one of the branches and we give them an exercise. And we say, right, we want you to develop five imaginary patients. And those five imaginary patients must, in broad terms, cover 80% of the income in your branch. In other words, they become the dominant patient types. And you have to give that imaginary patient an identity. And you have to totally understand that. They get two months to do the exercise. And they have to learn all the different touch points. And we give them a list of the kinds of touch points that we're looking at to understand about those patients. So where, and let's talk about a typical lady, lady patient. How old is she? Okay. How much does she spend? Where does she live? That, those give us some basic demographic ideas. But does she have children? If she has children, how old are they? What school do they go to? How does, the, how does the family spend Sundays? Does dad go and play golf? Mom sit and do household chores and then in the afternoon they have lunch? Or do they go away for the weekend? Or how does the family ever actually interact on Sunday? How do they get their news? What car do they drive? Where do they shop? So you're tapping into a few things here. Very, very deep. Consumer behavior. Of, yeah, of, of who they are what their daily experience is, and also what their emotional needs are, I would assume, as well. Does this imaginary patient have a Facebook account or an Instagram account, or do they work on LinkedIn, or do they, how do they speak to us? Do they contact us via WhatsApp? Do they phone us? Do they walk in? Do they email us? Do they work, when, work when through get, Some of this your staff will know. Your staff will know how they contact you but how do they know where the kids go to school where the dad plays golf on Sundays you know to know to actually understand the patient on that level they really need to know the patient so how do they get that information are they making it up or do they really know now we teach them how to ask those questions so for instance if you were going to ask a female customer where she buys her dress if you're going to turn it into an interrogation then it's market research and then she has to fill out the answers. So you have to interrogate the customer without knowing that the customer, the customer realizing they're being interrogated. And that's why it's done over two months. Because remember as well that it's done over multiple people. So it's not one person that you have to answer all the questions because you've created these buckets. So for instance, if you were going to say to a lady, that's a wonderful dress, beautiful, where did you buy it? 
That is a completely different way to saying, where do you buy your clothing? So for two months, every couple of years, the staff's conversations um, in some ways is a big information gathering exercise. And it's down to treatments. It's down to spend per visit. It's down to everything, why they come to us, whether they use one of our single brands or whether they work cross brands, whether they're a single uh, branch uh, customer or a multiple branch customer, whether they buy retail products or do therapist services or only see the doctor or all three. So once you have this information, um, which I should just say is very, very, it's not surface tool. It's very, very rich information, the type that most businesses would love to have. What do you do with it? Well, the first thing is we have some fun. So we then have a team building exercise and each branch, we visit the branch with our management team and they put on a show for us. And one staff member gets dressed up as a persona and each staff member gets to act out that person and then they present themselves and they talk about themselves it becomes a little bit of satire as well and it becomes a way of self-expression because everything is slightly exaggerated particularly in the dressing up part and on one side it's quite silly but in other side, everyone laughs at each other and laughs at themselves. So it turns into a very nice team building exercise. But then we interview them and we then ask questions. So once we have all of this data together, so currently there's 16 branches, five archetypes per branch, we land up with 80 archetypes. Now, there are commonalities, of course. And then we start a distillation process. So we've now brought the... We initially brought the 80 archetypes down to 38 individual ones. We're now down to about 22 individual ones because the categories get slightly broader. But we've now identified 22 totally separate patients that come to us that behave differently, consume media differently, do different types of treatments, frequency of visit, all of those things. And this is very, very valuable data for our business. I think it's interesting, by the way, that you have 22, because I would imagine that most businesses and most clinics would, would imagine they have two, three, four, five. The 22 is a lot. And I don't know whether that's because of the, the breadth of the business um, or because you're just doing it in such a, a, a deep way. Well, Miriam, if you, if you remember that South Africa has 11 official languages, Gotcha. So what are and we, and, and we, are, we are such a multicultural society because um, on the one side, we've got the indigenous population where there are 11 different languages, but we're also a country of, of immigrants. So I come from Dutch heritage. Uh, Maureen comes from uh, German and Lebanese heritage. And all these people's cultures and ways of doing things have been brought together into one vast melting pot. And people still culturally... Genuinely a very, very diverse society. That's part of it. Yes. So how does having this information, again, how does it actually impact the business? How do you, once you have it, how do you use it in order to grow the business or serve um, your patients better? So it, there's two main ways that we use that data. One is to understand better the customer that is at a branch. 
okay? Because are we fulfilling the needs of those customers? Um, do we do all the right things for the customers that we have? Are we connecting with them through the right channels? Do we um, speak to them the way that they want to be spoken? Is this an email customer? Is this a telephone customer? Are you fulfilling the why for each one of those people? Yes. But at the same time, there's only five people, five uh, personas at that branch. We've got 22 personas. So where are the other 17? Now, if those other 17 that didn't appear on that branch's radar don't exist within that community or city or area, then we can ignore them. But very often they do. We're just not reaching them. So we're not connecting with those. We target people because you have very, very deep information. Absolutely. What will appeal to them. So what we are missing out on is the channels through which we connect to those people at that branch because we are so focused on connecting to the people that we do have that we're not connecting to the people that we don't have because we don't know that they exist. So now we can start looking at creating opportunities for that branch to widen its base of customers. So they can use, essentially it's cross-fertilization. They can, each branch can use um, the information and I assume also the marketing materials created by other branches um, in order to grow their own, in order to grow their own um, patient population. Okay, so one of the things, branches are not responsible for marketing in the sense that you mean it. It's a question I always ask when I go into branch and I say, how many people in the company are involved in marketing? And very often I get the answer, well, there's seven people in the marketing department. I said, yes, but there's 200 people in the company. You're all involved in the marketing. But that's the customer retention, customer relationship, all of that. Actively marketing, going to seek customers is something we do centrally. And it's very customized per branch. So every branch has its own marketing identity, which connects at a micro level with its customers. But our company has a brand identity, which connects nationally with its customers. But the message that goes out for the brand is different to the message that goes out for the branch. The branch is about the relationship. The brand is what we stand for. But in terms of using the personas, essentially, you can, you can then um, use it to focus staff on other types of customers that they could, the patients that they could be connecting to, helping them connect to people they may not have connected to before um, and reaching out to new people. And, and almost that when that patient now does start coming to that branch, who's not a patient that's been there before, they, they also them. know that they already have an, a fairly good understanding of this patient's behavior or projected behavior. Um, Victor, one last question, which is why do you think that, um, that most clinics do not do this kind of exercise? Why do you think that, that that's really not oh, happening? It's so unique what you do. Very, very simple. Because most clinics are owned by doctors and doctors are busy seeing patients. And they're busy from eight until five or seven until six, seeing patients. Then they still have to do the accounts. Then they still have to do some marketing. Then they have to deal with HR issues. Then they have to place orders. Then they have to 
And so it goes on and on and on. And they do not have the time to think about this. What's with Maureen and I, what's so unique is that she can focus on the doctors, the treatments, the solutions, and everything that is patient-facing and that is clinical, and be completely absorbed in that. And I don't have to deal with that stuff because I deal... So the, the joke we always make is she's uh, Lewis Hamilton who's driving the Formula One car, and I'm the guy in the garage who's keeping the car running. Um, so at the end of the day, having somebody... Um, it's very, very important lesson, really, for the scaling of the pretty so having somebody who is uniquely focused on business development ultimately enables you to do that. There are a few doctors that have picked up those skills. But let's face it, they went to university to become a doctor. They didn't do a business major. I went to university and studied business and architecture. I know nothing about medicine. I have learned several things over 15 years of being in medicine. But I can't do a treatment. Uh, it's out of my comfort zone. So your, um, your background in business has given your business basically a massive, massive advantage. So doctors who do not have that, because as you say, they are practitioners, um, should they be hiring somebody else? How, how can they access that, that knowledge? What should they be fall doing in, to get that? Fall in love with somebody who has the knowledge. <laughs> I think that's a wonderful place to end. <laughs> perhaps not the most, um, perhaps not the most practical recommendation for everyone. <laughs> Thank you very much. It has been an absolute education. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Great, it's a pleasure. Probably the easiest is LinkedIn um, because it separates it out of the, all the daily email that I get. And if anyone has any questions, I'd be more than happy to uh, to share. I'm, I'm lucky in that I do a fair amount of traveling in, in Europe and the US and Australia. Um, and if I'm ever in their neck of the woods, I'd always be happy to meet up and, and have a chat. Um, I love learning. I love seeing how other people do things. Um, yeah, you know, I met uh, back in my days in shopping centers. We had a thing called the International Council of Shopping Centers. And I remember back in the mid-80s, it was run by an American guy called John Riordan. And i never forget his opening address at one of the international congresses. He said, 2,000 people have just come to this congress, and all of you have arrived with one idea. It is your opportunity to either leave with 2,000 ideas or leave with the idea that you arrived with. And that's why talking to people is... It's so essential. Well, that's what this podcast is all about. So, Victor, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you as a, as a guest. And we'll see you in the next episode of How I Scaled My Aesthetic Clinic. <laughs>